0: If you can, go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to kick off by reading God's Word. We're going to be reading from uh, Galatians 1, uh, verses 11 through 24. For my people who have the paper Bible, I'll give you a chance to get there. It's in between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. All right, they get stuck together. Use your table of contents if you need to, no shame. I'll give you like three seconds to get there. One, two, three. All right, here we go. So here's what it says. It says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas or Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the the, uh, Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us, now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. You may be seated. and Bless the reading of God's word this morning. So as you already heard, we are continuing in our Galatians series, Journey into Captivity. In this series, our aim is to study the letter to the Galatians closely. We want to see this message of freedom and identity that we, that we find in this letter. We want to uh, ask ourselves this question of what is currently captivating us in this season of life. And in this letter, we believe that the Apostle Paul really map out for us a, a timeline of sorts uh, to what it looks like to possess salvation. Tyler showed us this graphic uh, last week. Um, as you can see, kind of where we're going each week Um, Each week, we're going to pull a theological term, and we're going to sit with that theological term. We're going to explain it. We're going to understand what it means for our faith today. And this morning, our theological focus or theme is the term revelation. Revelation. For most people, when they hear the word revelation, they immediately think of the final book of the Bible. All right, but the term has a broader use In Christian teaching beyond being the title of a letter. Uh, In verse 12 of our passage, Paul says that he received his gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And in verse 16, when telling his story, he says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Both times, Paul is speaking to the same idea. You've heard this here before as we've talked about uh, the book of Revelation and 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 the definition in this context is really the same. The the root definition is this idea of removing a veil. It's this idea to uncover uh, or to reveal what's been hidden. It's about seeing things clearly as they really are. You know, this is the core ingredient of every soap opera and daytime TV show. I don't know if you were raised like me, but maybe you were where you were just subject to the vile treatment of daytime television at your babysitter's house. I I just remember some of my core memories from the age of uh, birth. I I mean, I believe I was in in a crib or something watching Maury or something. But I believe from birth to kindergarten, some of my core memories are Scooby-Doo and Days of Our Lives. It was Scooby-Doo and then uh, Jerry Springer. Scooby-Doo and then Maury. And you know what kept everybody coming back? It was this idea of revelation. You know, you had to keep watching Days of Our Lives every day for 30 years, all right, to figure out who the secret killer is. The big reveal was coming, and they just kept pushing it out and pushing it out. And the way that Maury kept you coming around is that they introduced you to all the potential babies' fathers. And then they waited till the end of the show so you couldn't leave because you just had to see who the daddy was. <laughs> well, well in, in, in Christian theology, revelation is, is a term that is helpful for us. It's often divided into two subcategories. You have general revelation and you have special revelation. Uh, Helping us understand these distinctions, I want to borrow from uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Uh, He's a longtime Canadian Bible teacher that served in the Chicago area for 30 plus years. But here's a helpful definition uh, that he shares. He says that uh, revelation is the free act of God by which he graciously condescends to display and reveal his character, nature, and will to mankind. God has revered himself by what we categorize as general and special revelation. General revelation is broad in scope, available to mankind as a whole. It displays God's glory but lacks the salvation message. When you hear that, think of passages like Psalm 19.1 that says, the heavens declare the glory of God and and the skies proclaim the works of his hand. I I had this captivating moment myself uh, for the first time when I was in Colorado in February and I went up uh, the Rocky Mountains and they were snow-capped and it was the purest white I've ever seen in my life and there was just this magnificent beauty that as I rode up that mountain, I was struck with this awe and this amazement of God like it, it was the most beautiful sight that I've ever seen it deep inside my soul like there was just this affirmation that there is a creator right there there is a God of intentionality and that it can't be denied my 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 inner being would not allow me to deny this truth he goes on to say a special revelation is the appearance or manifestation of specific communication especially involving God's redemptive will. The most compelling example is the coming of Jesus Christ to earth to reveal the Father and to provide our redemption. When I read that, my mind goes to John 1.14 that says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, Now, the cool thing about Revelation is that it's available to us every day. God in his grace has provided us all we need on this side of heaven to experience his truth and and to hear from him. The problem is that oftentimes we find ourselves looking for a burning bush or a talking donkey that we miss the burning of the Holy Spirit in and around us and take for granted the scriptures that are God-breathed and and filled with the living and active truth of God that speaks to us every time that we should dare to read it. Truth is, I think in our brokenness, we aren't satisfied with the ways in which God has chosen to reveal himself. So we run to other means and find ourselves searching in the wrong places for a word from God Oftentimes, the searching has less to do with knowing God more clearly and a lot more to do with knowing my situation more clearly. And the truth about God is, God will not be used. If we seek revelation for ourselves, God will not reveal Himself. We must seek God for God Himself, and there we will find truth, and there we will find revelation. Maybe you've seen this searching taking place in the world. It can look like the strong, weird emergence of things like witchcraft and dark arts in our society, where people are summoning demonic forces to try and find answers for their problems. I just want to tell you, if, if you think, uh, If you think that stuff is not real, just go get in your word. Harry Potter has desensitized us to the truth that the enemy is working in this world and that witchcraft is not some made-up myth and demonic forces are are just imaginary things. They're active and working in this world to deceive people to their own destruction. It can look like the growing comfortability with pagan spirituality in our society where people appeal to, to any religious deity or spiritual practice they deem helpful to solve their problems no matter how congruent they are. It can look like once faithful believers beginning to embrace things like new age theology that tells us that we are little gods. So we just speak things into existence because that's going to solve our problem and we can manifest what must happen in our lives. That's not biblical. That's not true. It convinces us that somehow the universe has power That the universe has a will that impacts our lives, ignoring the God of intentionality that calls us daily to his purposes. That searching can look like faithful believers falling prey to new winds and doctrines like the Galatian church did when it approaches you at Kroger. When their missionaries show up on your front porch, these false doctrines... They stake a claim to godliness by associating with Jesus, but at the same time denies the power of his gospel. All because somewhere in our hearts, we've either forgotten the truth of our own testimonies or deemed the truth that we have in God's word insufficient for our day and our time. Church, where we look for God matters. Where we seek out truth, it matters. When we search out a word from the Lord matters in the gift of God to the New Testament world is that along with the general revelation that can captivate your heart and captivate your mind, we have the testimony of Scripture that makes much of the God-man Jesus. We have the initiating work of the Holy Spirit that convicts and consoles and counsels, And for those who have been saved, we have our own testimonies of life change. That is sufficient to provide all the revelation we need for a saving and persevering faith. Revelation in the Word from God is always there. But where are we looking? And why are we looking? Now, from our earlier definition, we learned that revelation is God's work to remove, uncover, or make clear truth about Himself or His will. In reading that, we can see that Revelation has a goal and that it solves a problem. Uh, The problem it solves is spiritual blindness, or what the Bible sometimes refers to as a veil. Now, when you hear this term veil, what probably comes to mind is a bride wearing a veil that covers her face as she walks down the aisle. Uh, In one sense, as she wears it, 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 it slightly obscures her view. She can't quite see as clear as she would normally uh, be able to see without the veil covering her face. And at the same time, it, it hides or conceals her from the groom until the big reveal or that moment of revelation when the veil is pulled back. Spiritually, veils work the same way. They in one sense obscure our view of truth while at the same time cover and conceal what's true about us when we encounter the truth of a living God. For example, a political veil will allow us to see clearly the things of God that match up with my desires, while at the same time concealing us from the gospel that compels us sacrificially towards the vulnerable and our neighbors. A cultural veil will allow us to acknowledge the beauty of God's heart for humanity, while at the same time concealing us from the gospel that compels us to renounce what this world celebrates. A veil of greed will allow us to see the biblical principles of money growth in the Bible, while concealing us from receiving the gospel that compels us towards extravagant giving. A veil of pain will allow us to see the character of God that that brings justice, that brings wrath. Yet at the same time, conceal us from receiving the gospel that confronts the unforgiving heart. Veils obscure our view of the truth and block us from the full impact of the truth. In our passage from Galatians this morning, we read about Paul's moment. Where his veil of religious zealotry and self-righteousness was removed The moment itself happens in Acts 9. Now, we won't go read Acts 9 for the sake of time, but I do want to do a flyover and just give you a picture of what this moment looks like. I really encourage you. We're a church here that wants you to to read your Bible. I don't know. We know we have people from all different backgrounds in our church and and different backgrounds emphasize different things. But we want to be a church that emphasizes that you to go read the scriptures for yourself. And so I invite you to go read Acts 9 when you get home today to get a full picture. But I'm going to do a flyby real quick. Uh, In Acts 9, 1 through 2, at this point, Paul hates Christians. And he's determined to persecute them and ruin their lives. In essence, Paul was a terrorist. A lot of times we don't think of Paul that way. But I want you to think of what you imagine in your mind of a terrorist religiously persecuting other people. And that is what Paul was. Acts 9, Three through nine, Paul encounters Jesus on his way to persecute the church. He sees the glory of God, is blinded and humbled to the point that he could not eat or drink for three days. Acts nine ten through 13, God sends one of his disciples by the name of Ananias to go and minister to Paul in his brokenness. He speaks Paul's calling over him and through prayer healed Paul's sight. Right after Paul received the Holy Spirit and was baptized into the faith. And then in Acts 9, 19 through 25, Paul was on fire for Jesus so much that during his time in Damascus, the local Jewish leaders decided they were gonna kill Paul. So the Christ followers in Damascus helped him escape town to save his life. In 25 verses, Paul went from wishing death on all who proclaimed Christ to, to running from death because of his own proclamation of Christ. Paul went from being a terrorist wearing a veil of worship shaped by his love for God's law and self-effort to an evangelist walking freely in the grace and truth of Jesus. He went from going to kill a specific people to depending on a specific people to save his life. That's the power of revelation. So again, when we land in Galatians 1, Paul is referring back to this season of revelation in his life as a part of his defense of apostleship and the gospel he preaches. What Paul's story teaches us is that sometimes we think of revelation as these one-time moments that we just have an epiphany, But, but what's probably more accurate is this continual journey of receiving truth and clarity from who Jesus is and what God has for our life. That's what Paul's story represents for us. Tyler told us last week that the reason he was given this defense was because this Galatian church had received some false revelation. They had received some new teaching that was muddying the waters of the gospel, and it was uh, tearing the credibility of Paul up in the region. And so, the primary purpose of our section of scripture today is very clear it's Paul's credibility, it's the credibility of the gospel. But in defending his gospel and defending his credibility, we see an eternal truth that has transcended many lives in this room and one that will continue to transform us if we're willing to let go of our veils. It's the revelation that seeing Jesus clearly changes everything. With that in mind, what does Paul's story teach us about seeing Jesus clearly? Number one, I think it teaches us that seeing Jesus clearly confronts our sin. Seeing Jesus clearly confronts I was saying for Paul, he emphasizes his former way of life. He's like an old football player that talks about how he should have went D1 if he didn't blow his knee out. But if you look at my high school stats, I was better than Adrian Peterson. Like, like <laughs> Paul is saying, you know, my former way of life. I was zealous. I was a I was a fire Pharisee. Like I was the man and I hated Christians. But then something happened to Paul. On that road to Damascus, somewhere in between where he left and where he was going, he encountered Jesus in all his glory and encountering Jesus in all his glory, Paul got a crystal clear picture of all his brokenness. Somewhere in Paul's journey, he was confronted with the truth of his sin. And I just want to say this, uh, seeing Jesus clearly and allowing that to confront our sin is not just something we do for the sake of salvation, but it's something we do for the sake of faithfulness every day. See, here's the truth that the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What that tells me is this, is that the holiness of Jesus always has something to say to our brokenness. If you're living life right now and there is no conviction when you stare Jesus eye to eye, there's only two options. Number one, you don't know Jesus and you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I would say, listen, Jesus has something better than this world could ever offer you. He's offering you grace and love and redemption and it's worth having. But the second option is this, you have found Jesus, but you have become numb to his holiness. You have gathered yourself a doctrine to your likeness where it has become okay for you to quench the Holy Spirit. And you are now experiencing the truth in Scripture where God says, I will leave you to your sin. I will leave you to your desire so that maybe you might learn the cost of disobedience to me. And I would just challenge you to say, get in God's word and, 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 and get a fresh encounter of what it means to pursue Jesus and, and see your sin face to face. Here's a question to take home and ask yourself, where in your life is the, is the Holy Spirit currently at war with your flesh? If you get home and you can't write anything down on a piece of paper, I, I just implore you to hit your knees and invite the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal and give you fresh revelation of where you are walking in disobedience or where you are walking in brokenness that Jesus wants to heal. The second thing we see is that seeing Jesus clearly corrects us in His grace. So we get a confrontation with sin, but we also can get a confrontation with grace. When we think about Paul's story, on that road to Damascus, I want you to go there. When you go there and read it today, because I know y'all are going to go and read your Bibles. When you go there and you read it, you're going to see this particular encounter between Paul and Jesus. And there's some beautiful theology under their conversation. As Paul is on his way to persecute, he encounters Jesus. And Jesus asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was on the way to persecute the church. Well, who is the church? It's Christ's bride. What does the Bible teach us about marriage? Two became one. So in Paul's persecution of the church, he was in fact persecuting and crucifying Christ again. The most egregious sin And the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And so at that moment that Paul set out to go persecute Christ, he deserved death. And at that moment when Jesus revealed himself, he had every right and every uh, 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 reason to kill Paul. But what you see is that Jesus did not kill Paul. He blinded Paul. He humbled Paul. He put Paul in that paradox of grace, of opportunity versus justice. And that's the truth of the gospel. The gospel preached is the wrestling match of opportunity versus justice. The gospel says justice is coming, but in the meantime, I want to give you opportunity. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so what we find in Paul's story are two truths that probably represent everybody in this room. That two truths is this. For some of us in this room you need to experience the grace of rest. There are some of you who are the faithful, that you are chasing after Jesus, but that war of the flesh and the spirit is happening and you just find yourself failing more than you're succeeding, but you are earnestly pursuing God. And in that failing, what is happening is the father of lies, the enemy has shown up and he is speaking condemnation over your life. And what he's not speaking of your life is the truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What he's not speaking of your life is his invitation in the word that says approach his throne of grace with confidence so that you might receive mercy and grace in the time of need. The enemy wants to condemn you into more self-effort when the gospel calls you uh, to to just simply rest in the hands of Jesus and allow him to take the will. So for some of you who are earnestly pursuing God in this room, I just want you to hear this revelation. You are loved the same in your sin when you fail as you are in your righteousness when you do it the right way. You have the full measure of God's love. And so you need to just receive the grace of rest in this moment because in that rest, you will receive this revelation that the spirit is walking with you and leading and God and you along the way. Now, for other people in this room, what you are experiencing right now is the grace of restraint. For some people in this room, believers and unbelievers, what you're experiencing right now is this restraint of God's wrath and justice. There are some believers in this room right now that are willingly and knowingly walking contrary to the will of God in your life. And God and his love is moving slowly so that you might repent. But make no mistake about it, God has other means. We've seen it happen over the last few years that a lack of repentance will eventually lead to a public exposure. So, for some people in this room, I just want to tell you right now what you're experiencing is a grace of restraint in the affair today. Repent, come clean. For some people in this room, you're doing some things illegally under the table that you've gotten away with. Repent. Change. You're experiencing a measure of grace and a measure of restraint right now. And for the unbeliever, every time you hear the gospel, every day that you wake up outside of a confession of faith in Jesus, you are experiencing God's grace. Every day that Jesus doesn't crack the sky is another opportunity for you to find hope and hope everlasting. One of the graces is from salvation. The other grace is for salvation. So I got two questions to ask. Are you experiencing daily encounters of God's grace? to the saints in this room, are you allowing yourself to experience that grace? And to my unbelievers, it's not on the screen, but are you living in awareness of God's grace? Are you allowing yourself to come face to face with the revelation that uh, you're doing it your way and God yet still gives you another opportunity? Here's the third thing we see. Seeing Jesus clearly commissions us into his will. In Paul's story, this looks like Ananias been sent to Paul <clears throat> to both uh, heal Paul, but also to speak calling and purpose of his life. When you go back and read it, you're going to hear that the word that Ananias takes Paul is actually not a word that I don't, I don't want. Like, it's not a word that I don't think anybody raised their hand for. The word is, hey hey, go tell Paul all that he must suffer. For my name's sake. Like, imagine being blind. You just had this radical encounter with Jesus. You've had your life figured out your whole life. You're just going to move up and be one of the top Pharisees. All of a sudden, you're blind. You don't know what's going on. Your whole theology is being wrecked. And here comes this dude. He's real nice. He's gentle. He's loving. He rubs your arm. Hey, brother Paul, I'm here for you. The Lord has sent me to heal you. He prays for him heals him. Paul's like, oh, thank God I can see Hey, I got one more thing to tell you. Jesus wants me to tell you that you must suffer all these things. I'm going to name them for you. Let me tell you all that you must suffer. You must be lashed more times than Jesus. You you must be shipwrecked. You must be arrested. I just got to tell you all these things. But it's going to be good. That's your calling. (laughs) And what that teaches me is this about Walking in God's will. There is no purpose without pruning. There is no purpose without pruning. Matthew 16, 24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When you're called into salvation, you're called into being a disciple. And along that journey... There are going to come things that we're called to step into that are going to just be uncomfortable. But a lot of times on the other side of uncomfortable are the promises that God has for us. And so I got a question. Where in your life are you denying yourself and following after Jesus? Jesus. Is your life shaped to your likeness or to his? Number four, seeing Jesus clearly produces in us a public witness. At the end of our passage, Paul says, Listen, I didn't go and hang out with the Judean church. They didn't know me. But you know what they did know? They, know that they knew that my life had changed. This was before social media but somehow word had got out that Paul the persecutor was now Paul the evangelist, Paul the apostle. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you are walking after Jesus, then you have a call and a responsibility to produce a public witness. Jesus doesn't need incognito disciples. So I got a question. Does your life testify more to the work of your hands or to the work of Jesus in your life? What do people know about you? Do people know that you know how to build a deck? Or do they know that you know how to build a kingdom? Do they know that you love Stanleys because it has a good handle on it? Or do they know that Jesus has gotten a handle on your life and it has changed you forever? What is the testimony of your life? And listen, I don't want you to hear this in condemnation, but I do want you to hear it in conviction. I do want you to hear it as a challenge to say, here at Northeast Christian Church, nobody are sideline players. We call membership here stakeholders because we believe all of us are responsible for the gospel permeating our city and this world. The priesthood of all the saints, even the ones that show up 30 minutes late, you have a calling too. So what is your life testifying to? I think it's no coincidence, thinking God's timing, we find ourselves on a weekend that highlights a public witness. This weekend is MLK Day weekend. A man whose commitment to a revelation of God compelled thousands upon thousands of people towards a public witness that looked a lot like this. A lot of times we like to see pictures of Dr. King sitting at a desk or giving a speech, but this is the cost of discipleship. In his book, *Stride Towards Freedom, he had these words to say when speaking to the heart of the civil rights movement from a Christian perspective. He said, we believe firmly in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. I can see no conflict between our devotion to Jesus Christ and our present action. In fact, I can see a necessary relationship. If one is truly devoted to the religion of Jesus, he will seek to rid the earth of social evils. The gospel is social as well as personal. One of the lasting legacies of his life and the thousands of people who joined him in changing our society was a revelation that God's vision for humanity is more beautiful than what this world gives us. Lives like his, lives like Paul's, heck, even lives like the people who caught a vision to start this church. Is the truth that hearing from God and humbly saying yes to the good, bad, and ugly of obedience has the potential to impact generations and change our world forever. So as I close, I want to ask, where might God be revealing himself to you that you might be missing? Where is God showing himself to you plain that he's asking you to respond? Can I bet my life on something? And I probably shouldn't do this. I'm sure somewhere in the Old Testament says don't bet your life on something. But I want to bet my life on this. Everybody in this room has an opportunity to respond to God today. Everybody in this room has that sound of Jesus knocking, wanting to come in and dine with you. And what Jesus has for you may not be a world changing revelation like it was for Dr. King and all the others who joined the civil rights movement. But if it's truly from God, it's for your good. But most of all, it's for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We thank you because you're good, that you meet us in our brokenness. And even in that brokenness, you choose us and you invite us. And so, God, we just pray that for the rest of this time, we would have a wrestling match with you and your spirit and be invited into what you have for us. God, we love you. We need you. Meet us in this place. In the mighty name of Jesus, Amen.